So hello again, everybody, and welcome back to What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy, where we talk about things that are important to the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, their family, and those we serve. Here today with us, we have Chief Patrol Agent for the Big Bend Sector, Sean McGoffin. Chief, thanks for thanks for being here. Glad to be here. So, uh, Chief, you are currently at the Big Bend Sector, but you're coming by way of, well, actually by way of many different places, but most recently you were up in Haver Sector as the Chief Patrol Agent. That is correct. I was also the deputy chief before that, and so I spent the last five years in Haver, Montana, in the, the very large sector along our northern border. So a lot of time spent up north, and that's the part of the United States Border Patrol that not many people think about. Most people, whenever they think about the job that we do, it's along the U.S.-Mexico border and, and all that that entails. Certainly you can see on the news almost every single day something taking place, but not a lot of thought given to the, uh, the U.S.-Canadian border. What kind of threat exists up there? There's a lot of threats, you know, some things that we don't normally see um, a lot of times is, you know, aircraft is a, obviously a potential to fly across our border. We look at that. We, we, we have that is always one of, of a potential problem, but there's other little problems, too. It's very remote, uh, very, you know, extreme distances between locations. And so it, it, it's very difficult to get access to land sometimes to be able to be right there on the border and look at those things. So it, it, while it's different, there's still a lot of the same challenges that we face on the on the southern border, but it's just in a different environment. You know, we don't have to re- worry about freezing temperatures as much on the southern border, although recently we did have that in Big Bend sector. So, and maybe Big Bend sector isn't the best example to use for this particular analogy, but I talk about whenever I was in Laredo sector and we had 170 miles of border that we patrolled. Moved up to Haver, or, uh, Holton sector in, in Maine and it was over 600 miles. How many miles of border did you have in Haver Sector? We had 456 miles of border in Haver Sector, including one mile of uh, actual lakefront that we actually had to work. And oftentimes, to get to the lake, we had to go into Canada first and then come down into to the United States to work. So how does that work? How, how does a Border Patrol agent on duty get to go into Canada just to be able to go to their place where they're going to report for duty and work? Well, normally they report to the station, but if you wanted to get out into the remote parts of that area, you either have to ride a horse 25 miles into what we call goat hunt or you actually get to go into canada um and then patrol you know deploy a boat and then drive into canada and work in that area i mean into the united states from canada and work in that area so it's it's certainly unique and different but it's one of the many it's how we attack the the many problems that we have in the border patrol right we have to take initiative and seek other opportunities and you know i I don't want to take credit for that it was prior chiefs that actually initiated that but it's really good for us to be out there. And we've, we've made apprehensions in those areas, and we've been able to get out there and patrol and make sure that we can deploy the right technology as well. Absolutely. And, and i got to assume that that involves a pretty, uh, a pretty strong partnership with the Canadian government and those law enforcement officials that work that area too. Absolutely. We had to work with them. We have to get permission to even go into Canada and do that. And there's a lot of other challenges, right, when you catch somebody – in one of these remote locations, you can't just take them into Canada and then bring them back into the United States. It doesn't work. So we have a lot of other challenges. We work with a lot of our partners to be able to, when we do apprehend people, to get them out of those very difficult areas. So talk me through that. So let's say let's say you're out on patrol and, you, and you're working in that area that you have to cross into Canada to get to. You apprehend Jason Owens, who is there doing something illegal. How do you get me back to the station? Well, there's, there's very limited choices. We can either walk 25 miles out which is difficult in the conditions, the weather conditions, or we can, you know, get on horseback and get out 25 miles, which is difficult because oftentimes 
can't put a person on a horse either. So then we have to rely on air. And so we had some really great partnerships. When Air and Marine was unable to do that, we had Big Bear Air, which is a part of, uh, it's a local, uh, uh, little local uh, aircraft that, that supports law enforcement whenever they can, and they've been very big supporters of the Border Patrol up there. So we utilize them to get them out to locations where we can, um, and then, you know, formally process them. See, those are challenges and obstacles that are just fascinating that I don't think most people think about. And it's an entirely different way of doing business up on the northern border than on the southwest border. I went back to the, you know, the 170 miles with Laredo sector and the more than 600 in Holton. In Laredo, we had the better part of 2,000 men and women out there working uh, that section of border. About how many did you have in, in Haver for 400 plus miles of border? Well, we our TO was, you know, we were a little over 200, but most of the time we were working well below that. So at best, one-tenth of the manpower that Laredo sector had. Oh, absolutely. It wasn't very very much. And and, and it is oftentimes very difficult to, um, to have a deployment strategy that meets the needs. So we have to be very careful about what we do. And then at the same time, um, make sure that, uh, you know, we're deploying effectively and efficiently with what we have. And so you take advantage of that. We work other ways. We partner with other people, uh, work with CBP Invent to get us to text, test some technology up there so we can see how well it works for future. Because one thing about being a chief in the field is you always got to be looking for advantages for the future. You know, we're going to have problems now. That's fine. But we got to set ourselves up for the future and the success that we're going to have in that time frame. So obviously we don't have the flow of traffic coming across the border in Canada that we would uh, probably with the border with Mexico. That said, there's still threats. What do you say to those that might say, yeah, there's nothing to worry about up there on the Canadian border. You don't really need to be worried about patrolling that particular border. You need to focus other areas down the southwest border, for example. Well, I think that's probably uh, not a very good aspect to look at. We might not have the ready and apparent threats that happen that we see daily on the southern border happen on the northern border. But it really, it only takes one um, one bad person to do bad things in the United States to make it a significant problem. And so we need to make sure that, you know, we continue on with our Border Patrol efforts everywhere and make sure we're doing everything we can. And hu- what's really huge on the northern border is the intelligence aspect. We have to look at things through an intelligence perspective because we don't necessarily have all of the eyes and ears that we need on the border itself. So what we do is we rely on our communities uh, in within there to go out. We go out and meet with ranchers. It's part of the daily duties a lot of times for more northern border agents is to go out and meet with the community members, the ranchers while they're out there patrolling, talking to them, getting information, and then making sure that they understand. We have campaigns where we make sure people know who and where to call if they see anything at all. And it's been very successful because that puts more eyes and ears on the border than we currently have. And that's a big benefit. So of course you're talking about things that serve as force multipliers. So we may not have the manpower that the Southwest border has up on the Northern border. We still do have a very real threat and is a threat to be taken seriously, different kind of threat. After all the U S border patrol, as chief Scott likes to say is it's a border security agency and that's all threats. That's not just one aspect. It's not just immigration. It's not just uh, uh, folks from any given country. There are threats that we have to take into consideration that if, that impact this country its people and our way of life each and every day. So for us, border security is all of our borders, not just the Southwest border. Well, the challenge faced by you and those that have been up on the Northern border is you have a much more expansive area, uh, very austere terrain and a lot fewer people to do the job. And so you have to look for, as you said, the biggest bang for the buck and, and ways that uh, can, can multiply that force. So the Intel and partnerships that you have with your communities of interest, obviously huge, 
what about some of the technology that, uh, that we use up there? Well, we're still testing a lot of technology, right? We, we, we have game cameras and things of that nature, but we're really trying to test some other aspects of technology like radar for areas that are, you know, not easily seen. Um, and that comes with its own challenges. We were able to get a couple of the ASTs to test, you know, because one of the things about technology is you never know how it's going to work in extreme conditions. And now, when you say AST, what is that? Well, one of the Andrel towers that we had. Okay. So that was a testing to put those towers up there to see what they act like in those conditions. Because the thing is, technology is great until you put it out in the heat or the, or the cold, right? And then you find out, well, maybe it doesn't work as good. So we didn't get a lot of those. They're just testing venues for those places up there, you know, in certain areas. And so those help, but it also motivates the agents, right? They get to see, like, what the future of the board is going to be like with technology aspects. And so, it's one thing to have a piece of technology function when it's 75 degrees outside, quite another to see if it functions when it's negative 10. Right. And it just shows, you know, in, in the procurement processes and the acquisition process, you know, we, we always talk about what we need and how we're going to use it. But this is like the real testing. Like the, the, the Border Patrol is very diverse in the areas that we work. And so it needs to be tested appropriately. And I think we do a really good job of placing those in different locations for those kinds of testing. I think CVP overall does a great job in that. And so let's talk about the actual border itself. And there's a lot of people that haven't seen the U.S.-Canadian border. If I go up there, what does the border look like? Am I going to see a wall? Am I going to see a, uh, a fence that, uh, that separates the U.S. from Canada? You're not going to see that. And, you know, you might see some barbed wire fences here and there, but most of the time where I was at, they were put up by ranchers themselves. And in some cases, they were, they were put up by the IBWC at, at one point, but most of the places where I worked at, there's just nothing there. There's the end of a field and the start of another field, and that's pretty much it. And so... That's there's really no demarcation other than, the, you know, our, um, you know, our markers that we have up there. But really, there's not a lot of demarcation in a lot of those areas. So I saw some of the, uh, the same things in both Holton and Grand Forks sector where a lot of times you would have maybe through a tree line, we call it the slash. And it right. was just a clear a clearing of the brush along the U.S. Canadian border. Some places it was nothing more than a berm. Other places, if it weren't for the monuments you're talking about, you wouldn't know when you crossed from Canada into the United States. It's literally from one field to the next, kind of the same way there in, in Montana. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Montana is a very d diverse area. You go from plains all the way up into the mountains. So you do have the slash in those areas where we have large trees. But out in the plains, there's there might be a fence. And if you go into other areas, there's nothing at all. And if you don't see the markers, it's oftentimes very difficult. You know, and that was one of the challenges we faced while I was up there. You know, we had the GPSs that everybody used to, to navigate, to drive places. And so we had to get with those GPS companies and say, hey, you know, we're interdicting people driving around the port of entry. And it's because your systems are literally telling them to drive around the port of entry because the port of entry is holding up traffic. And so we were able to do that and, and make some of those changes so that these people weren't doing it inadvertently because that was happening a lot as well. You just would never think about something like that even being an issue. Right, but there's no fence out there, so they just drive to the road, and they, GPS is telling me to drive down this road, so they do, and the next thing you know, we're interdicting them, and you know they don't know what they did wrong. That's amazing, amazing. So you had roughly 200 people, uh, men and women up there on patrol. For somebody that wants to go to the northern border or that's interested in doing uh, border patrol work on the northern border, what advice would you have for them? Number one, what does it take to get there? And then what, what's life going to be like? What's the work going to be like? Well, the work isn't always going to be as, you know, 
like it is on the southern border, you're not going to be extremely busy every day. But people are counting on you. So we have the same expectation that you go out there and you patrol, you're, you're watchful, you're, you know, you're looking at things, making sure that you're doing your job proficiently because people are counting on you. And like I said, it takes one bad guy to, have a, to give everybody one bad day. So I think the important part is really based around family too. You, you got to make sure that your families understand the environment that you're going into and really concentrating on your families. You know, I was talking to some of the trainees today, and that's a big piece of Border Patrol work. It doesn't change between the northern border and the southern border. It's concentrating on your family when you're, when you're not at work because you get into these remote locations, and you might not have all of the, the outlets to, you know, go to the movies sometimes or go to a store that you need to. You find out that you become a very good friend with Amazon and other ordering companies. So, you know, it really it's about concentrating on the family when you're up in those remote locations where on the southern border in some areas, not in Big Bend, we have a lot of remote areas out there as well. But you can have that outlet to go and do um, shopping and get out and do some recreational activities. The great thing about Montana was that we had the recreational opportunities to go out and hunt, fish, get out into the wildlife and the outdoors. Beautiful country. It was it was just simply amazing, and, and I really enjoyed that aspect of being up there. But again, concentrating on family when I'm not at work, so that nobody feels neglected, and and working towards you know um, having an experience together. Remember when when your family goes with you, they're having an experience too, and so Absolutely. you want that experience to be well for them as you know. Uh, you know, when they're doing that as well. That's great advice. Now, speaking of the trainees, you're the senior mentor for class 1166. So you were here today getting introduced to them or, or them being introduced to you. What'd you think of what you saw? Oh, I loved it. This is really great. I loved everything that I saw around the academy, other classes, as well as the one I was able to, to talk with. They had some very good questions. They're, they're thinking about their future. And I think that's great. I think some of them are a little concerned about what the training is going to entail, but I told them to trust the process. Because that process has got us all through some difficult times. We've all been in some rough scenarios, and we had to act. But as I told them today, all of us are confident about what we're going to face because we've been trained, because we trusted the process. And so I think that's an exceptional thing that's going on here at the Academy. I agree, and I think uh, it kind of speaks to the level of training that they that they get and why it's important. You, In each and every case we've been talking about thus far, whether it be in Montana or in Big Bend sector, these are very remote austere locations and a lot of time it's safe to say they're out there working by themselves and and backup may be several minutes away from them they may not know exactly where they are and there's a good chance that when they do encounter somebody they're probably going to be outnumbered so the importance of the training really gets driven home when you think about the job that we're going to be asking them to do tell us a little bit about how the training has changed now you were a, an instructor here at the academy back in 2005-6 yes i was how do you think this training has changed or evolved since that time? Well, I think the training now is much more structured and there's much more, I think it's more purposeful and you can see that, um, you know, everything is done in conjunction with something else. It, so it relates. I think there's much more cohesion between say firearms and even Spanish or, you know, even operations, all of that is much more cohesive in the overall training, knowing that it's all going to come together and prepare the trainee for the actual field. And I told them that today. I, I, I told them one specific thing was that, look, we're going to face adverse conditions. We're going we're gonna to face overwhelming odds. But the one thing that the Border Patrol never does is never turns and runs. We face whatever we have to face because we're Border Patrol agents. We put our noses in the wind and we move forward because that's what we do. We don't simply just sit there and go, well, I've got 100 bodies in front of me. 
I'm not going to run from that. I'm going to take care of the issue. And sometimes it's difficult, but we always persevere and we always move forward. And so I told him, trust the process. You're getting trained appropriately here at the academy. And I have every confidence when you come to the field that you're going to be prepared to deal with these difficult situations. And remember what the Border Patrol is all about. You know, we always get difficult conditions. We always move forward and we never give up because America's counting on us. Our communities are counting on us. And me as a chief, I'm counting on you to go home to your family every day. So be prepared and be ready. That's great advice. And speaking of difficult conditions, so you and I were at the academy almost the exact same time, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. How do you think the training's changed since then, since you and I went through compared to what it is today? Is it better, worse? Oh, I, I, I think it's way better. You know, obviously, I, I had some good instructors at the academy. We did a lot of good training at the time. And again, like I said, it prepared me for what I needed to do and the continuation training after that. It prepared me for rough conditions. But I just see there's so much more of that now and the cohesion that goes on here. And, you know, I just think it's so much better because everything interrelates better than it did when I was there. You know, um, firearms and the training that they get and preparing them. And then just the first thing of bringing them on board and then seeing how they, uh, how they do in a difficult situation. Not giving them any critiques, but telling them what did you learn from that? How did you feel? That's so much better than what we did. We just went in there and, okay, here's your training and here's your difficult situation. And if you didn't do good, they gave you criticism. So I think it's really good at this point how it's working and that, you know, moving things forward. So I agree. And it's it's taking the lessons learned on teaching philosophies and, and evolving with the environment. It's a much different world we live in, especially after 9-11, than, than we did back in the 90s. And I think it's always good, at least for me it is, to see that the – organization and its people continue to get better and evolve with the environment. And it makes me proud, and, and I know that whenever it comes time to, to walk out the door, you're, you're handing it off to, to folks, and it's going to be in good hands that are going to carry the organization forward and continue to improve. So 320, that's your class number. That's correct. Do you remember your class chant? I do. Well, what is it? Looking good, feeling fine, 320 is on the line. Nice. So that was 25 years ago, and you can still re recall it just like that. Absolutely. And I was talking to the class a little bit about that today. Mm -hmm. I said, you know, we relied on each other when I was there. We had 49 students go to the academy. We had 49 graduate. And it was because we had consistency in helping each other. I had classmates that were having a hard time in law. I turned around and helped them in law. They helped me in Spanish because I struggled in Spanish. You That's know? amazing. So every, every member of your class graduated. That's correct. You don't hear. I, I wonder how many times that's happened in the history of the Border Patrol. I really don't know, but I know this. If everybody helps each other and works together, it's possible. And that's what I told them in the class today. It's possible if you all help each other get through this. It's another difficult time. You're going to face those in the Border Patrol. But when you're out in the field, you're relying on your partnerships with, with your fellow agents, and you know they're going to come in a heartbeat if you need help. We shouldn't take that any different in the academy than we do when we go out to the field. That's great advice. Did, what was the challenge for you in the academy? Did, was it Spanish? Was it law? What was, what was your most challenging aspect? I think, for one, it was Spanish. You know, I didn't understand Spanish as well as I probably could have. Um, I took Spanish in college, I took a couple of courses. That didn't help out at all, it seemed like, when I got here. But I was thinking about my family back home. Like, I really need to get through this. And, that, and a, lot of, a lot of trainees have that. And, you know, they're going to do whatever they can because there's just more than themselves re relying on this. Some, there's not so much. And so they, they may not understand the severity of it. That's what I faced when I was here as an instructor. Because a lot of times my, you know, my students that didn't have um, a lot relying upon them making it one way or another, you know, they took it less seriously. 
I told everybody to take it serious because as their classmates are going to count on them for help. You know, when they go out to the field, they're going to have their, their fellow agents going to have to come out and they're going to rely on them for help. And it's always better to be prepared and ready to do so. So for me, it was really about Spanish. I did well in every other thing. I didn't have any issues. Uh, you know, I was kind of a little devastated that I didn't, you know, I, I fell one round short in, in oh, the pistol. You'd rather miss it, it by kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of annoying that that happened to me. I practiced so much, but, you know, overall, it was a very good learning experience for me. And I just, I'm just glad that I had all those classmates that helped me with Spanish while I was in the academy. Good point. And then when we moved on, it was able to make me successful. And I've been able to use that success from that starting point with my classmates all the way till now in my current role. And have you kept in touch with any of your classmates over the years? Absolutely. Talked to a lot of them quite regularly. Any of so. them retired yet? Oh, yeah. A lot of them yeah. are retired. It starts to be more and more over the years, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I come to envious sometimes. So, you know. So you, uh, being here at Big Bend, where do you come from? What, uh, where are you originally from? I'm originally from Benson, Arizona. So you already knew about the Border Patrol? I did know about the Border Patrol. I didn't know exactly what everybody, what it entailed, but I did know about the Border Patrol from the time I was a kid because I seen, uh, I was able to see vehicles driving around with U.S. Border Patrol. I just didn't really understand what they did. So what, what was the point or what made you look at it and think, that's something I want to try and do? Well, I knew that it was different, and I knew that it was unique from normal law enforcement. I had family members who were in law enforcement, and for me, this was something different. I didn't want to. I wanted to try something different, and and work in an environment that was very unique. And so that kind of, you know, when I was, you know, I had previously served in the Marine Corps, and I, I got into something I thought was unique, and it really wasn't. I was in communications, and then I just found myself in the infantry unit, which was great, great experience, great time, but. This was something that was unique. There was no other law enforcement like the Border Patrol, and that uniqueness is what drew me to that. Did you know right from the get-go that this was going to be a career for you, or were you thinking, maybe I'll try this for a few years and, and do something else, or how did that evolve for you? Well, I didn't know that it was going to be my career. I wanted to try it out and see how I liked it and what was going to transpire. Um, but, you know, one of my classmates was a former cake decorator, and she came into the Border Patrol, and she did an outstanding job. She's still doing an outstanding job to this day. And she inspired my wife to join the Border Patrol. So my wife came into the Border Patrol. And when she did, I knew then that it was going to be a career endeavor for us both. And uh, I was happy I did. It worked out great. So speaking of your wife, I was going to get to that uh, eventually. But uh, you really did keep it in the family. So you, both you and your wife, uh, now your wife is now retired. That is correct. Uh, lucky uh, of the two of you. And so she spent a career in the United States Border Patrol in uniform as well. How did that work? So you, I, I got to assume that you both transferred together and probably weren't always working the same shift, probably had different days off. How did you maintain the work-life balance whenever you both are coming in and going out on patrol each and every day? There's several of us here in this organization and indeed throughout law enforcement where, where that's the case, where we've, uh, we have spouses that are also in law enforcement. Talk to us about that a little bit. Well, I think the first thing was we talked about family, prioritizing your family, right? So my wife and I oftentimes would work exactly opposite shifts so that we could take care of our son. We, when I worked in Lordsburg, we'd stop at a little rest area on the side of the road and chat for five minutes and do it, turn around, do it 12 hours later. You know, that's just how things were. We always tried to make sure that our days off were the same so that we could spend some quality time together and with our son. You know, uh, we were always there. We always made sure our son was a priority above anything else. And we, 
you know, we did a lot of sacrificing of other things to make sure that he was taken care of. But that our family was unique, and it was important for us to make sure that we were always together and it was always a priority. And it helps because it's not always easy, right, raising children and, and you know, when, when one's in law enforcement and one isn't or both are in law enforcement, it's still difficult. But at the end of the day, it's really about making the, the family a priority in your life and what you do. And when you do that, you can overcome a lot. And so for us, we faced a lot of different challenges. We worked in a lot of different places. And sometimes we had some issues, you know, it was it was often difficult. I remember a time when my we were in Washington, D.C., both working there in the Capitol. And my son calls me and says, Dad, I, I forgot my key. And, you know, he couldn't get in the door. And it was, you know, I think it at the time it was like three degrees. And you start freaking out, like, oh, how did we mess this up? You know, would you go get the other key? Well, I used the, your wife tells you, I used the key the other day. So, you know, you, you make adjustments. And the first thing we did was we just got out of there as quick as we could and got home to make sure he got into a warm place. So we talk about work-life balance a lot. A lot of people can say the words and, and define it. Very few of us that are actually good at practicing this concept that really means a lot. Yours is a case study in that. I don't see. I don't see how you could make your situation work without understanding and prioritizing, as you said, the family aspect of work-life balance. I think people can look at what you've done over the years with you and your and your spouse and, and your and your and your kid, and see that uh, it can be done. It is difficult, as you uh, as you pointed out, but not impossible. What's some advice that you can give to somebody that might find themselves in a similar situation or? or is faced with that issue where they're having trouble keeping that balance and it feels like work is getting in the way too much. Let's face it, this job is it's very important and the mission is very important and a lot of times it's very demanding on all of us. That said, when we do retire, when we do leave this uniform, the people that are going to be with us when it's all said and done are those family members. So it's worth it to invest that time in taking care of them and prioritizing them. What advice can you give to some of the uh, new trainees that are starting out that might face a similar situation to yours? Well, I think first and foremost, you're not going to be your best at work if your home life isn't isn't good, right? So we talk about relying on each other, relying on other agents to help us and move us forward, you know, when we're in times of need. You know, it's the same thing. You have to be able to have try to work towards having a good work life, a home life, so that your work life is well-balanced as well. So, you know, like I said, prioritizing your family is a, is a hugely important aspect of it. And I think just recognizing at the end of the day, you know, you're, you know, it's tough. We lose sleep sometimes. I remember coaching baseball and getting four or five hours sleep. It was difficult, but when the t- time came to get that rest and focus on my family, I absolutely did that, you know. And being there for your family is, is, is important because it's, you're right, it's just simply not an easy process to go through sometimes, but certainly well rewarding. I think the most important thing I would talk to trainees about in the beginning is prepare for the life that you want to have one day. The patrol is a very limited time in your life, very limited. But when you're a trainee, you look at it and say, well, it's only so far, right? I, they're only thinking like a f- couple years in advance. We need to start thinking about our retirements right off the bat and what that's going to allow us to do. Having a wife in the board patrol was extremely, a ble- extremely blessed from that simply because we're able to have an excellent retirement and now spend time with our grandchildren and our son you know, and we planned that from the very beginning. We always knew it was going to be important for us not only to spend time together then, but prioritize for our future as well. Working towards a goal. And exactly. Always doing that and thinking about making good financial decisions based on those simple things of family coming first. 
And so it really worked out well. We were able to do a lot. Um, fortunately for me, you know, um, being very frugal at times and doing stuff with the family, I was able to go back and get my education, get my bachelor's degree, go back and get my master's degree, and then, you know, apply that that learning into my job, but also into the activities that take place outside of work. And so it was very beneficial for me to have another opportunity to learn and then be able to pay for it on my own. That's such a, a great point about what the Border Patrol, but really what any career or job is in the big scheme of things in terms of our lives compared to what our families are, the, our loved ones, and kind of keeping that in perspective. We do like to talk a lot, especially here at the Academy, about how, how important and special the U.S. Border Patrol is for all of us. I know it is for you. I know wearing that patch and, and wearing this uniform, it, it, it means a lot to you. Spent about half your life in that, uh, in that uniform. So it's always going to mean something special. But at the end of the day, it's towards a purpose. And I think that perspective is something that is very important for people to, uh, to learn and, and learn from. You're working towards retirement. You're working towards being able to spend time with your grandkids, with your children, and, uh, and enjoy a long retirement with those that you love. And that, that's one of the benefits behind not just working for the federal government, but, but working for the Border Patrol, an organization that affords you a pension and, and benefits so that uh, you can do that comfortably whenever you retire. But let's talk about what the Border Patrol really is to all of us. You joined it about 25 years ago. You wanted something different. You knew that, uh, that you wanted to get into law enforcement. You came from the Marine Corps. What has the patrol become for you? What does it mean for you in terms of that finite period in your life? When you look back and you decide to, uh, to retire, what will it represent? Well, I think it will represent for me a service. From the onset of my, when I, you know, got out of high school, I joined the Marine Corps right away, you know, got into working for the Department, Arizona Department of Corrections, and then into the Border Patrol. So my entire life has been about service. And I believe in that service. I believe there are things greater than myself and giving of myself to as part of my career has been just an absolute joy. Um, because, you know, we, it, I told this to the class today once again, you know, we go out and we are in difficult conditions and we have to deal with difficult situations. And sometimes we'll try our best all day long to go help somebody. We don't make it in time. It's very, it's, it, you know, we become distraught when those kind of things happen. But for us, it's about, you know, the lives that we do save. It's about those that we help. You know, I was very blessed in the sense that I came to the academy today and I ran into people that I've, you know, thanked me for the what I did for them in the certain times in, in their career. And, you know, that's what makes you feel the best because it is about service, not because you're serving your country, not because you're serving your community, but you're serving everybody around you. And I think if we all have that attitude of service, we will greatly benefit from that. And it's going to help. It's going to help others. I try to do informal mentoring all the time. That's just a great blessing, too. And getting to mentor this class, I consider it an honor and a blessing because that's the future of the Border Patrol. We don't know who's sitting in that class. It may be the future Border Patrol, chief of the Border Patrol, or the future chief of Big Bend Sector, right? We don't know. But having a positive impact on that is something that we can leave because we never will know the extent of our impact on this organization, the people that worked in it. But that's not what really matters. It matters that we did a good turn, that we did something to help somebody else before we move on to what's in store for us for the rest of our lives. So I, uh, great points. I was looking at your, uh, at your bio. So you've been to Tucson sector. You've been at the Academy, El Paso sector at the Lordsburg station. You've been to headquarters, not once, but twice. You've been to a uh, big Bend sector. Also, by the way, Laredo sector, assistant chief, and then a patrol agent in charge in Freer. 
as you said before, deputy chief of, uh, of Haver Sector and now the chief. What was your favorite position? What did you most enjoy? What was the period of time and the thing that you did that you most enjoyed in the U.S. Border Patrol? Well, I think you're always going to enjoy those moments when you're just an agent and you got yeah. to go out and work and help. I don't think I can ever go back and say, man, I didn't enjoy that time as an agent and just found it to be an outstanding part of my career. So I love Tucson. But, you know, I got to work in some very unique places that required unique work. And I found that is the most enjoyable aspect of it because you, you get different changes, different challenges that you have to face. But more importantly, I've got to experience the patrol. The only place I really haven't worked is coastal. And, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get that chance, but I got to experience the patrol and the different aspects of the different challenges, the different climates you got to work in, the difficult problems that you got to associate with each given job. And, and it's so much, so, so broad in scale, you know, that I always hope and I always talk to people, especially the trainees, because they always seem to want to just go home. Well, I started at home. I had a house two blocks from the station when I started. Oh, wow. And you know what? I never regret day one of leaving when I left to take my next position because it was a new experience, a new challenge. And I've got to see things all over the nation. And I've got to help people all over the nation. So that is, uh, for me, is the best. I love working in Lordsburg. Very remote location, but the work was great. I love being in Montana. Difficult situations, cold weather, all that. But it was a unique challenge with unique problems. And so every time you change, you face a new challenge and something new. And that's really invigorating for the job, right? Because every time I go, I, I just always feel like I have another opportunity to help other people. You know, I hear that a lot. I ask that question a lot, and and it almost without fail is the exact same answer. There's nothing like being able to grab a set of keys and just go out there and go on patrol and do the job that we signed up to do way back when. One of the unique things about this job is it doesn't matter what position you sit in, what rank you have on your collar, each and every one of us starts off at that exact same level as a trainee, probably a GS-5, at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. This is our home. This is our hub. This is where we all start and branch out to do whatever it is we're going to do. But almost everybody I've talked to, when you ask them that same question, it gets back to being that agent, going out on patrol, and doing that job that we were trained to do right from the beginning. Absolutely. And I think it's important that we always remember that, right? Because at the end of the day, I might be a chief, but I wouldn't be a chief if it wasn't for the agents on the ground. And that's the most important thing for me to remember is that I represent them. Yeah, they represent me and the work that they do, but I represent them in making sure they get what they need to do their job effectively. You know, and I'm always a big proponent of that. When I was in Haver sector, I'd always tell the employees, it's your sector, you know. Don't feel like you don't ever belong because you always belong in our sector. And I feel that same way about Big Bend as well, you know. Um, we want our agents to understand we all started at the same place where they're currently at, and we want them to understand that we've been through difficult circumstances through many places, and I understand the difficulties they're going through because most of the ones they're currently facing, I've faced somewhere else in one of, my, one of the jobs that I've had. It was difficult, and it was tough, but like I said, we never give up. We never turn away from danger. We never turn away from our responsibilities. We always face forward and move forward, and so... Remembering where we came from is a critical piece of who we are today. Absolutely. And here at the Academy, in addition to the curriculum that we teach, how to do the job, we also teach why you're doing the job. We teach uh, good judgment and decision-making, and a key part of that is our motto for the U.S. Border Patrol, honor first. 
And one of the things right from day one that we instill on each and every training that comes through those gates outside is that's more than just a tagline. That's a guiding principle that's supposed to guide our actions both on and off duty. So it has to carry a special meaning, and it's something that we all give great thought to. And as chiefs, that's the case for us as well. Talk to us a little bit about what Honor First represents for you. And when somebody says that to you, what are they telling you? Well, I might be of a little bit different mindset because of my Marine Corps ties. So when I take that oath, I take it, you know, I take it very personal. And and that means a lot to me when I take that oath. It means a lot to me when I give it. And every time I give it, I explain how important that is. Honor first is about who you are. It's the character that you you let everybody else see. And so sometimes when we're on our own or we're out, we're off duty, we forget that we have to carry that honor first you know, mantra for us to follow, right? And it's very easy to do that. So we always have to do that all the time because it's about who we are. It's it's our character. It's what, what we want others to see. Sometimes, you know, it's about it's about getting other folks to, to understand that, look, I... I don't do this or I don't do that. I don't engage it because it's this. And, you know, it goes extends beyond that because really like on our first, it's not just at work, it's at home, it's your family, it's who you are. You know, when we have an expectation that you're going to do something that it re- represents more than yourself. It re- recognize it, it, it's about the agency. It's about the organization, about the entirety of the patrol. You're representing other people and you need to think about others, not just about yourself. Right. I mean, there's so much to be proud of in wearing a uniform, and it's unfortunate sometimes people dishonor that. But for me, honor first is about being who you are. It's the character that we want you to show everybody, and we want you to live every day because, you know, there's those around you who are counting on you, and there's nothing more so than an agent that's counting on you to back them up in a difficult time. So speaking of that, that's a great segue into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. So being the chief patrol agent of the Big Ben sector, You have an incident that took place in your sector uh, several years ago that is very important to the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. It's it's kind of a a landmark. We actually have a vehicle from Big Bend Sector that was involved in a shootout where, thankfully, all the agents uh, survived. But when you walk up to the dining facility, you can see the vehicle under a canopy, and you can actually see the the bullet holes that have gone through the, the door and the window and and uh, underneath the canopy, the, the canopy itself is the what we call the below 100 canopy. And that, that is the effort that we make in law enforcement to try and make sure that fewer than 100 law enforcement officers die in the line of duty each year. And for the U.S. Border Patrol, that vehicle epitomizes that effort for us as law enforcement officers. Talk to us a little bit about that, uh, that event and what took place that day in Sierra Blanca. Well, having just moved to, to the sector, I, I'm not as... Um, not in depth familiar with that, but you know it did take place around a shootout that happened, and all of the agents survived that because of their training, and their you know being purposeful in their movements and what they did to try to to take care of that escalating situation, and because of that that you know nobody was killed. But it also demonstrates the realities of our job and what could happen on any given day, and I can tell you as a chief, it's not a good thing to lose anybody. It, it's uh, really a bad thing. Um, as a chief patrol agent, I haven't lost anybody. But while I was here as an instructor at the academy, um, I had a class that I had, and, and I taught that class. And then they went out to the field, and I ended up going out to the field. And I ended up working with a lot of those trainees. And one of those trainees was actually killed on duty. 
um, while I was the senior guy at the station. And it was a very, very difficult situation. It was very hard um, for everybody to go through. But I knew this young man and I knew his family and I got to meet all of them. And, you know, those are stressful situations. That's why we got to take our job serious at all times and make sure that we're not, let's eliminate the mistakes, you know, and let's rely on our training. These 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 um, young men at uh, Sierra Blanca Station, they did that, relied on their training and they utilized it and, and they came out on top. That doesn't happen all the time. And I can tell you from my perspective as a chief, I never want to ever have to do that again. So I talk to agents all the time about the responsibilities of going home to their families every day, making sure that they understand that they got to be safe in their in their approach to things, that they got to think things through, they got to re- utilize their training and always be aware of dangers that are looking at them because it's always around us, right? And so we have to mitigate some of those things by being conscious of the things that could hurt us. Absolutely. Few people realize that a lot of what we do here at the U.S. Border Patrol Academy is scenario-based, and those scenarios are based in large part on incidents that have actually happened out in the field. The the Sierra Blanca incident is actually one of those. And the tenets of the Below 100 program, wear your vest, wear your belt, don't get complacent, and remember what's important now. That's the concept for which this podcast was actually named to drive home the point for just how important those tenants are for the exact reason that you talk about. At the end of the day, what we want to do is make sure each and every one of us goes home to our families at the end of every single shift. And so that vehicle under that canopy for us here at the Academy stands as a monument to all of those tenants and that desire to make sure that each and every one of us goes home at the end of every shift. That's a huge honor for the big men sector to have that represent such an important program here at the Academy. It absolutely does. It's, it is a huge honor for those folks uh, and myself. You know, I I'm very, feel very blessed and lucky to be a part of Big Ben Sector. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's always going on out there. And, yeah, that, that does a, it's a major representation. But we've had other instances in our sector, too, where other agents have passed away, too, in, in the line of duty. And that just never is easy. But we're thankful that folks are training properly, that they're getting the training they need here at the academy to be better prepared for their time in the field in the future. And, you know, making sure that we don't have any more deaths than necessary. You know, we don't want anybody to die at any given time. But unfortunately, there, there are times when it happens, and we know that. And we accept that risk every day when we go to the field. And, you know, um, for me, it's really about making sure that because complacency is what we talk about a lot. Let's don't be complacent. Let's don't go be complacent. But that comes in many forms. We might be prepared for the guy behind the door. We might be prepared for the guy that's hiding in the brush. But what are we, are we prepared for everything else? And we just, you know, you can't be, you can't necessarily say that you're not going to be complacent about some things. And so, you know, we try to encourage families to get involved, right? Remind your husband, hey, you know, be careful out there today. Be conscious about what you're doing so that they come home. Or your wife, you know, make sure that, you know, you tell your wife, hey, make sure you're, you're, you're really aware of your surroundings, what's happening. Try to reinforce that because it's really, again, it all falls back to that family, right? We want them to all to be happy, and they can help in that as well. Absolutely. And it, those tenants actually create incidents that have a good outcome, like we talked about with, uh, with the incident in Sierra Blanca. And certainly you're speaking as an experienced chief patrol agent, experiencing those situations that don't work out that way. And I think whether or not we're working beside the individual, whether or not uh, they are under our, our command at the time, it's, it's a situation that nobody wants to experience, and, and once you've gone through it, you know, 
it's, it's not something you ever want to repeat. And one of the things we, when we stand out in front of that, uh, that what's important now monument, uh, we talk to the trainees and we say, if you do this job long enough, you're going to know somebody on the honor wall. Somebody that you know is going to lay down their life in service to this country. It's keeping that from happening, keeping their memory alive by uh, practicing those tenets and making sure that we go home to our family each and every day. It's really hard to put into words. It's hard to uh, it's hard to express how that feels. But that said, we don't want if we can avoid it. We don't want people knowing what that's like. If we can get uh, those tenets followed, the likelihood of something bad happening to our men and women out there decreases dramatically. Simple wearing your seatbelt whenever you're uh, when you're out on patrol, remembering to wear your vest, and just not being complacent, as you talked about. That can be for the family. That can be for, for the men and women that go out there on patrol each and every day. Sounds so simple, but it's so hard to get everybody to practice that. Why do you think that is? Well, I think everybody has an idea when they've been in the field for a while that they kind of understand how things work and what they don't work. Most of them have not experienced uh, significant death like we've talked about. And so for them, it oftentimes isn't driven home until they get faced with the reality of, of something difficult, right? The first, one of my first trainees that, that passed away shortly after the academy was one where he crashed on the way home. You know, it was a matter of just, I'm going to drive home like I normally do, not really paying attention, and then he had an accident. So it goes beyond just work. It's about getting to and from work. It's every day, everything. And we, we get to that point sometimes because I think that we feel like we have a very good understanding of our surroundings and what goes on. And what I have actually seen is you get used to, you know, talking to 99% of the people you talk to are not going to be bad people. And so you get so used to that and you feel safe in that environment. It's that one person who takes you out of that, that safety, right? Puts you in a bad situation. And you always got to ask yourself, are you prepared for that? Are you going to be ready for that? You know what you just defined? What's that? Complacency. Well, it is. And, you know, <laughs> it's complacency is a, is probably one of our worst enemies, and it gets a lot of people hurt. And it's it's very sad, but we're all guilty of some form or another. Oh, you, you know, I sit in my office on a regular basis, feel pretty comfortable, feel like nothing's going to happen. You, I never know, you know what I mean. But I like to think that I'm cognizant enough to be able to react to something if something bad did happen. Um, you know, I believe in going out to the field, so I've been out to the field several times and and so with in this new sector and i've got to go out and work with the agents and see what they're doing try to understand what's going on and then get that message out because we work in these environments we we get around people who are always you know sometimes very docile very easy to talk to and and then all of a sudden you don't you're in a wrestling match before you know it and so we've got to make a a big impact with our with our agents to say you know what be ready for anything at any given time don't be complacent don't get used to your environment. Remember, everything in your environment could one day be something bad in your environment. You know, it doesn't, you might know somebody for years and they turn out to be the worst problem. You just never know. That's great advice and, and couldn't come from a better place than the chief that's in charge of the very monument we have for the Below 100 concept. And, and folks, if you want to look more into the Below 100 concept, you can you can Google it. It's simply below and then the, the number 100. And Learn about how it's a, a law enforcement-wide effort to reduce the number of on-duty deaths of law enforcement officers and how we have not even been able to get that number below 100 
since this program's inception. Each and every year, we lose at least 100 law enforcement officers in the line of duty, and many of those can be presented or prevented rather by simply wearing our seatbelt. You'd be surprised how many of our brothers and sisters that we lose in, in car accidents or remembering to wear your vest for that one time in your entire career that you may need it. Chief, any other uh, words of advice that you'd like to give to the trainees or the men and women listening right now? I just want everybody to understand and, and you know that I as a person and as a chief patrolian care about all of our employees, care about the jobs that they do and how they get those jobs done. And most importantly, that they go home every day. Amen. There's nothing more important than that. Well said. Chief, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. Until we talk again, stay safe out there and honor first. 